Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for gathering us here, and uh, we, Lord, we pray that you would uh, make this word which has been read and is about to be preached, uh, Lord, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would make it effectual, um, that it would, uh, as, as only it can uniquely, uh, conform us more and more into the image of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Lord, would you be at work in such a way uh, that, that we would grow in, in love for you, in love for your word, in love for one another, and in love for our city, especially those who don't yet know you. Uh, Lord, that you would work into us godly sympathies, that you would help us to never forget the greatness of, the, of our own salvation, the great deliverance uh, we have experienced, if indeed our faith is in you, that you have brought us from death into life. Uh, Lord, that... Um, that, that is astounding, that's an astounding reality, and one uh, I'm afraid that we diminish to our harm. And so, Lord, would you revive in us again uh, a deep and abiding sense of the greatness of the good news of Jesus Christ and its present value and its present power, um, that we might avail ourselves of it and give you glory because, indeed, you are the great King. So, uh, attend to us now. We, we are needy. We're hungry and we're thirsty. Feed us here this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, many of you know uh, that uh, my wife and I spent many years in, in the Boston area, and during our time there, we were uh, invited to a party uh, out on Cape Cod that was being hosted by uh, Kit's old college roommate. Um, her, uh, her uncle was throwing this party, and, and her, her roommate, and a good friend of ours, is from one of these large, you know, uh, South Boston Irish Catholic families. Uh, so we showed up, you know, showed up at this party, and it was every it was every bit the Ben Affleck Matt Damon movie you would imagine it to be. It was chaotic. It was packed. It was loud. Everyone was related. Uh, the beer was flowing freely. We didn't know anyone, and you know our friend kind of disappeared in the crowd. And and since we hadn't been introduced to the uncle, you know I, I became quite curious as to who this guy was who owned this spectacular house on the Cape. And, you know, for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out until, until I wandered into a room where a bunch of men were gathering and they were watching a golf tournament on the TV. And then a man entered the room, and without asking anyone, he picks up the remote and changes the channel of the Red Sox game. And that's when I knew. That's when I knew whose house it was who owned this place. Now, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and, and this is a gospel which tells us in the very first verse that Jesus Christ comes into the world as the one who owns the place. That Jesus comes as Savior and as King, as one who's come to, to serve and to save, and as one who is laying claim to that which is rightly his own. That he owns the place. And Jesus' first words in the gospel actually affirm exactly that. The very first thing Jesus says in the gospel of Mark is the time is fulfilled. And the question is, what time? And the answer is the time, all of time. Which is to say that, you know, from the very start, Jesus is asserting his kingly authority, which, which affirms the fact that he in himself is the center point upon which all of history turns. That he is in himself the central purpose to which all of history points. 
kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. The king. So this morning, we're going to focus on on Jesus as king, and in particular, with a view to his kingly authority, Uh, an authority which he alone possesses, an authority which has the effect of provocation, it provokes, and finally, uh, an authority which always prevails. And we pick up with Jesus coming to this little town of Capernaum, and he he makes a beeline to the synagogue. Um, Now, the synagogue is something like a local church. It's not exactly a local church. Um, The center of worship was really the temple in Jerusalem, but but week-in, week-out worship was occurred in the synagogue all across the land in little towns and villages. And, you know, the way you got a synagogue up and running in your town was simply this. If you had a quorum of 10 Jewish men older than 13, you could say, we've got a synagogue. And every synagogue had a leader who wasn't so much a pastor as a church administrator, whose job it was to, you know, to coordinate and to line up a rotation of teachers and rabbis who would come and read the scriptures and teach the word. And Jesus is, is one of those rabbis who, you know, the church administrator, the head of the synagogue in Capernaum said, would you come and read the word and preach to us on Sunday, on the Sabbath day? Now, before we move any further, I just, there's something I really want to pay attention to just because I think it's of such importance and it's so thick in, you know, just the few verses we've gotten through already that I don't want to go much further without pointing it out, and that is the centrality of the Word of God to the ministry of Jesus. The Bible is central to Jesus' ministry. And, and I just, I think that's worth a little bit of thought, because who is Jesus? I've already said a lot about Him, but He's the incarnate Word of God who is Himself both the source of the Scriptures and the subject of the Scriptures, and yet when He shows up to the synagogue, He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to, we don't need this anymore, I'll do the talking now. Uh, it's quite the opposite. That there, you will find no one who looks to the Bible more, who loves it more, who honors it more, and preaches it, you know, as the fulfiller of it, than, than Jesus. And, and actually, even before he walks through the doors of that synagogue, before he flips a page, before he reads a sentence, you know, we've already seen a lot of this in this gospel of how central and precious the Word of God is to Jesus in his life and his ministry. Just a handful of verses in, and we've already seen that his coming is announced through God's word, that he endures temptation and combats the devil with God's word. The first words of his preaching come as the fulfillment of God's word. And immediately after gathering his disciples, his first move in ministry is to go and teach and preach God's word. And it is that relationship to the scriptures that helps us, I think, understand what his audience is, is saying when they say that Jesus showed up and, wow, he taught with authority. And what does that mean? Well, of course, Jesus was a brilliant teacher, a captivating teacher. But, but to say that this guy teaches with authority is not a comment on his style. It's not to say, wow, he's a, he's a great interpreter, or he's, really, he's got some great illustrations. You get a sense of this in, that, in, in the full comment where Mark says, you know, not only did his teach, teach with authority, but he didn't teach like their scribes. He's very different than their scribes. Um, now, the scribes had authority. They didn't lack that. They were leaders in their community. They, they had long since passed the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000-hour thing in their, you know, attention 
to their training. They had, they had, they had the credentials to back them up. Uh, they weren't lacking in authority. Greg and I serve in a denomination with a lot of guys like this. It's something of a scholarly tradition. It's not unusual to go to a presbytery meeting or certainly to a general assembly. And there are guys there, you, know, there's no, you can't swing a cat without hitting a, a PhD who's gotten, you know, not only gotten his PhD, but he got it in the Presbyterian promised land of Scotland. And he's written books. And everybody knows it. And he's famous. And those guys, when they stand up and say something, let's be honest, they've got a little more heft to what they say than, than, than I would. It feels that way at least. There's authority, right? But when Mark says that Jesus taught as one who had authority, not like their scribes, you know, we might refine that a bit to say that he was in possession of an authority unlike that of their scribes. It's different. It's not authority derived from an education or community respect or an, or, or an office or seniority. It's authority of a completely different category. And it's helpful to know the word here in Greek, which is exousia. Ex meaning out of, ousia meaning the being. Literally means he spoke, with, he spoke out of the being. And, and there were whole schools of philosophy that contemplated nothing other than the ousia. You know, the ground of being, the ultimate in reality, the transcendent truth. What is it, you know, what lies at the very foundation of, of all of reality? That's ousia. And, and it's, a, it's a concept rich in Christian thought as well. And you may not have noticed it, but we just read about the ousia in our Nicene Creed when we said that Jesus Christ is of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. The, the, the Greek word there is homoousios, of the same stuff as God. Of the same being, the same essence, the same substance. So, so when, when we say that Jesus taught as one who had authority, not like their scribes, what's being said here is that Jesus alone uniquely teaches God's word out of his being out of the substance, out of the original stuff. He doesn't take up God's word and mediate it like Greg and I might, or any of you might, or Isaiah did, or Jeremiah, or Moses, or anybody else, but he takes it up with authority as its author. And, and, and here's what that means in the synagogue. It is as if you're sitting in an Ivy League classroom with a world expert teaching Hamlet, the world Shakespeare expert teaching that. And then in the middle of the class, Shakespeare walks in the room. And in that moment, whatever that scholar's bona fides may be, whatever opinions they may have, suddenly become irrelevant because the author is now in your midst. Jesus' teaching is authoritative in that way um, and also provocative um, his authority provokes, and not, I think, in the usual, you know, kind of chin-scratching, nodding in agreement, wow, that was a great teaching kind of way. It's, it's not merely that people were impressed or that they were edified. Uh, Mark actually says they were astonished. And I don't think it would be going too far to say there was some measure of terror that, that struck them. Some, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of panic, um, you know, it wouldn't be, it's, it's like the question is in the room, you know, that maybe no one is speaking out loud, not just who is this guy, but what is this guy? Like, 
This isn't merely a prophet saying, thus saith the Lord, but that the Lord is speaking for the Lord. He's speaking his own words. He's speaking for himself. There, there's an account in Exodus 20 uh, that gives us some flavor of this, and it's when God's people are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God himself is giving the law. Moses isn't mediating it. And, and a lot of translations describe the scene as people hearing thunder from the mountain, but, but the, the actual better language is they heard the thunderings. The unmediated word of God from the mouth of God himself, and their response was astonishment, pair, panic, terror-strickenness. And, and you know that because they, they try to cut a little deal with Moses. And, and they kind of say, you know, it's not that we don't want to hear the law, but they go and beg him and say, you know, uh, from here on out, can you do the talking? And if you do the talking, we'll listen and obey, but if you let God speak the thunderings anymore, we're afraid we all might die. That gives us some flavor of the nature of the astonishment of the people in the synagogue. And, and you know, more than that, um, it provokes a confrontation. Um, very, very quickly, uh, there is a confrontation with an unclean spirit possessing a man in the crowd. Middle of church. And, and I feel like it's important, before I go on to, to say much about that, just to kind of say, okay, I know we're... We're modern, reasonably sophisticated people. We're all going to go home and watch, you know, a football game 2,000 miles away on a 70-inch screen, you know. And we find things like this challenging, maybe even offensive. You know, you might even think it's a bit laughable, the idea that there would be a demon-possessed man in the midst. Um, there's probably more than a few of us who look to this kind of thing as well. You know, I'll take the Bible you know, for its moral teachings, but some of this, it's primitive, it's pre-scientific, it's a little superstitious, you know, it's a clumsy way to account for the mess in the world, the evil in the world, you know, um, it's clear this person was simply just mentally ill, and had they had, you know, the sophisticated knowledge that we've attained today, they would know how to handle it better, you know, this is, this is kind of the stuff, you know, you might think, you know, this is what, this is how unenlightened people deflect from, you know, the real problems, the personal responsibility for the bad things that happen. It's a little bit lazy, but, you know, they weren't as smart as we are, so who can blame them? And, and you know, I've made reference to a few things. There certainly are important considerations when it comes to, for example, mental illness. That's real, okay? Or a lack of person, personal responsibility or criminality or, you know, all those things. And yet, you know, I just feel it's necessary to pause here for a second to consider our own culture that we live and move and have our being in, in this particular moment in history, which I want to say is an anomalous culture and an anomalous moment in history. You know, because it's our way, typically, to just dismiss anything supernatural kind of out of hand. And maybe especially anything supernatural having to do with a real devil and real demons and a real kingdom of darkness. You know, we would do well to take Scripture's fundamental position that there is, in fact, a real spiritual realm in which there are real evil beings that are active and complex and intelligent. We, you know, we would do well to take that seriously. And, and I want to say, you know, not only is this the teaching of the Bible, not only is this a biblical view, I want to say it's a rational view. You know, for starters, if you're a Christian, you affirm the spiritual realm. You affirm the supernatural. 
you know that God transcends, you know, our imminent frame. Uh, when you look at another person, you know, we understand that they are not merely meat puppets and, you know, elect electrons pulsing through synapses in the brain, but they are, they, they are endowed with a spirit, right? We don't take any of that, you know, as superstitious. We affirm a spiritual realm, and Scripture says that active within that realm is opposition. Evil not just as an impersonal force, but one in which supernatural beings are a part. And there's, a, again, lots to say about that. And I want to say, look, even if you're not a Christian, even if you look at this passage as a, as a sort of a relic of a criminal, you know, primitive past, you know, it's still, you can't escape the fact that it's not a question of if you have to think about the reality of, the, of evil in the world, but, but it's just a question of how you think about it. And quite honestly, I want to say when it comes to thinking through these things, modern Western post-enlightenment people not only don't have better answers, we don't even have categories. We don't even have a category for it. You know, um, and our, our bad answers border on ridiculous, in my humble opinion. You know, when our, when our culture tries to make sense of evil or tragedy in the world, um, you know, more often than not, we just deal completely in the, um, in the frame of that which we imagine we can see and touch and control and explain. So, you know, we go straight to things like, well, they just, you know, they lacked educational or economic opportunity, you know, or it's a political problem and, and will be worked out through enlightened policy and electing the right people and getting the wrong people out, or it's some other, you know, failure in human progress. You know, and, and we, we say that all while, I think, haunted by the possibility that when it comes to ethnic cleansing and sex trafficking and racial violence and enslavement and war and terror, you know, it may just be that it's not simply the matter of a bad political policy or lack of opportunity or education or jobs. That there might be more going on. And, and, and we strain after that. You know, and Christians struggle with this too. We, we try to make sense of it. Some of us, you know, affirm the reality of spiritual conflict, but we don't really take it seriously. We don't think it's quite the thing it once was in the Bible, and the other, you know, some of us think, no, it's real, and it's a, it's a dualistic battle, and God and the devil are duking it out. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a wildly creative book I would commend to you called The Screwtape Letters, and after he wrote this, it's about spiritual conflict. It's about the, the opposing kingdoms, and uh, he was asked by a British journalist, do you actually believe in the devil? And he said, well, if by devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain a perfect badness opposite the perfect goodness of God. The proper question, Lewis said, is whether I believe in devils, and I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these have become enemies of God. These we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of the archangel Michael. So the Bible, you know, doesn't teach dualism where God's duking it out with the devil, and yet it does teach that there is a personal demonic power that is at work in the world. 
And I don't think that's any worse of an answer than what us postmodern people say that, you know, it's just a failure of our politics and our opportunities. That doesn't comfort you much when someone close to you dies or when the Holocaust happens. So all that comes to a head in this little synagogue in Capernaum. And, and you've got to picture the scene. I mean, there's a demon-possessed man shrieking and convulsing in the middle of a service. And, it, you know, I mean, imagine that happening here. You, we would all feel... Yeah, we might be running for the exits, and you might feel like there is nothing ever that's occurred among us that's more threatening than that. But, but here's the thing. Here's how we have to look at this. The reality is the greatest spiritual threat in the synagogue that day isn't the unclean spirit possessing the man. The biggest spiritual threat in the synagogue that day was Jesus himself. Because what is under threat is not Jesus and his kingdom, and his people. But what's under threat are the unclean spirits in the kingdom of darkness. Because Jesus has come to destroy the powers of sin and death and hell, and he alone possesses the authority to do just that. You know, a little later on in this gospel, Jesus will explain this by way of illustration, by, by you know, some would say even a mini parable. Um, and he says, you know, the only way anyone has any hope of taking the strong man's stuff is for a stronger man to come along, break into his house, tie him up, and take all his stuff. All the stuff he's stolen. Now, when Jesus gives that parable, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself, and he's talking about his ministry. He, he's likening that strong man to Satan and himself to the stronger man who breaks into his house, ties him up, and takes all his stuff. And, and that is perfectly, that's a perfectly apt description of what he's doing in the synagogue on a Sunday morning. He's broken in. He's binding up evil, and he is taking back what is rightly his. First and foremost, this man that was made for him in his image. Jesus isn't merely preaching. He's provoking a confrontation. And the unclean spirit knows that, and he speaks to Jesus. He speaks in the plural, and he says, what have you to do with us? Um, and, and just to clarify this, this is not, you know, as if there are lots of demons in the man. It's because he speaks that way because the demon knows it's not just about him and Jesus. It's about kingdoms. It's about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. He's like a lone soldier who's gone over the hill and he sees the advance of the opposing army and he thinks to himself, we're in trouble. They're coming for us, even though, even though he's by himself. That's how the demon speaks. He speaks like a soldier from the opposing side. He recognizes that Jesus is the king and that he's bringing with him the kingdom of God. And yet, the question, what have you to do with us, you know, is a bit of an odd one. What have you, do, what have you to do with us? Well, and on the one hand, nothing. Uh, because, you know, Jesus represents the kingdom of God. And the demons have nothing to do with that kingdom. Evil has nothing to do with that kingdom. On the other hand, the answer is everything. Because he's bringing judgment and judgment and justice and the demise of the kingdom of darkness. And the demon goes on to say, he shrieks, he says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Um, which certainly is an acknowledgement, but I think it's more than that. It's, a, it's a, an acknowledgement. James says to the church, uh, you believe that God is one, good for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. This demon believes and he's shuddering. But it's more than that, and, and it's best understood, I think, by looking through the lens of another spiritual battle 
of another kind in Genesis 32 in the famous story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Now, if you don't know that story, uh, Jacob gets engaged in an all-night wrestling match with one of God's angels. And, and it, in addition to the sort of physical altercation that's going on, there's this odd deal going on between Jacob and the angel. There's this back and forth where they keep asking each other for the other's name. And the whole time, you know, Jacob is demanding a blessing, and, and before the angel actually gives it, the angel asks for his name, and Jacob gives him his name. And Jacob, the, the wrestling ends, Jacob gets a blessing, uh, and in that moment, he gets a new name, and the name is Israel, which means he has striven with men and with God and prevailed. But it doesn't end there. Jacob asks for the angel's name, and the angel never gives it. And, and, and the reason he doesn't give it is because the way this works is to give your name was to give in. It's, it's exactly like when you're a little kid wrestling and each of you is trying to get the other one to say uncle. And whoever says uncle loses and the other person wins. And, you know, because it's not like the angel didn't know Jacob's name, but he still insists that he says it, not just to, not just to learn his name, but to get the submission from Jacob. And, and, and Jacob actually ends up giving it. And it, in a weird way, his submission becomes his prevailing, right? Submission to the Lord causes him to win, in a sense. It secures him the blessing. And, and the, you know, but the big surprise, and here's Jacob's sin coming through, is, you know, even after that, all that's happened, he still wants the angel to submit to him. And the angel just won't have any of it. So what, what does all that have to do with this? Well, when the demon says, I know your name, it's a bigger deal than just acknowledging who Jesus is. It is a desperate ploy to get Jesus to give up, to submit. It's a last-ditch last attempt to get rid of him. It's, it's exactly the playbook Satan tried with, with Jesus in the desert, saying over and over again, basically, I know who you are. If you are the Son of God... Do this. He's saying in that, repeating over and over again, in essence, I know who you are. I've got your number. I've got your name. Give up. Submit. Don't carry forward this mission. And look, this is a, this is a dramatic story. Um, I've never witnessed anything quite like this. It is possible I never will. But, but I don't want to let the drama, you know, of the story make us think that these kinds of confrontations are over and done with. They're not. And, and we may especially, you know, in, in, the, in the Western church, uh, need to know that because we've got all the accoutrements of church life that can easily lull us into complacency, frankly. We got the comfy chairs. We got the good coffee. We got amazing music. We've got well-dressed, polite people. Um, but even with all that, the warfare persists. John Piper said, life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. It's interesting. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesian church and describes regular old church, day in, day out, Christian life like this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So, so to be Christians is to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's to be a child of the king. It's to be a member of his kingdom in service to his kingdom. And I want to say it's to be a soldier for his kingdom. 
you know, because we live in a world of rebel kings and opposing forces, and none of them like rivals. We're so accustomed to the, the domestic terminology as it relates to the church as a family, and that's appropriate. That is, that's an appropriate way to talk about who we are. We are family. Um, but that is merely one of literally dozens of ways to describe the church. And we would do well to not forget that the church is also an embassy. When people around the world have a problem with our country, what do they attack? They go right down to the embassy, start throwing rocks at it, because that's a little piece of this country there. Churches are like that. This is a little piece of God's country, God's kingdom here. And it stands out in that way. It'll take its shots. People are going to throw rocks at you. We're an embassy for the kingdom. Another term for the church is an army for the kingdom. One that is indestructible. One that's never retreated an inch because Jesus is king. He leads her in triumphant procession, advancing against the, the forces of darkness. So whatever else we might expect in this Christian life, and certainly there are joys and comforts and blessings to the point of overflowing. But there's also sorrows, and there's suffering, and there's opposition. And we need to be discerning. Not all the opposition I deal with in my life is because of, you know, I'm aligned with the kingdom of God. A whole lot of it is because I'm a jerk. You know, a lot of it comes because of my own sin, because of my arrogance, because of my foolishness, my obstinance, my readiness to pick a fight. My pride, my engaging in foolish controversies, my failure to love, my failure to serve, my failure to honor, and to do what Paul urges us to do in Philippians 2, to, to consider others better than ourselves. You know, I get opposition for that. I suffer for that. God is gracious to shepherd in us in all of that and show us our sin and lead us to repentance and, 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 and forgive us and restore us to one another. You see, Jesus alone is in possession of the power. He alone is in possession of the authority and the glory. That's his possession, and it always prevails. It always prevails at a cost. Jesus uh, delivers the man. His deliverance comes with a word. It comes with a very strong word. Um, you know, there's an old joke about a town in Texas that was called Cow Hill until the Presbyterians showed up, and then it became Bovine Heights. And our translation has a little bit of that. You know, it's got a little bit, it's, it's a little too polite. Uh, you know, Jesus says to the man, be quiet and come out of him. Okay, well, a better way to put it is shut up and get out. And, you know, this wasn't merely a disruption of a worship service. It was an act of destruction. It was what Paul calls divine power to destroy strongholds. Jesus brings that power to bear in de destroying a stronghold with a word excavating this man out of demonic oppression. And the demon comes out, not because he's scared or because he's changing his strategy around or something like that, but he comes out because he has no option. He must obey the command of Jesus because Jesus is the king. The stronghold is torn down. Healing is affected. The man is liberated. And then we get the reaction, not of the man, but of the congregation. The unclean spirit, what the unclean spirit saw clearly the crowd is beginning to see. Uh, they're beginning to see that Jesus is not just who he is, but what is he? That, that he's the king. 
that he's vested with divine power and authority. That's beginning to dawn on the crowd so that they ask, you know, on the one hand, a question, what is this? On the other, they're starting to kind of formulate some conclusions, like Jesus has a new, a new teaching, but it's with authority. It's not just teaching. It's not just authority. It's this unified thing, this power we haven't seen in the singular mighty act. They're trying to kind of sort it all out. What are they sorting out? They're sorting out reality, seeing it for the first time, that, that there is a king and there's a conflict and there is a comfort that has been brought to this man that this king comes with a power not to oppress, but to liberate, to bring life. And they certainly don't have it all sorted out, but they've seen Jesus. And, and they know that now that they've seen him, life can't be the same. And, and you know, I, I suspect, I, I'll even go further to say, I know that there are many among us who are sorting stuff out, not just in life, but about Jesus. Um, I, I used to sit on a bus when I would commute to work, and, and, and uh, you know, sometimes it's a good thing when people find out you're a pastor. Sometimes it's not a good thing. And this guy found out I was a pastor, and every time I'd get on this bus practically, you know, he would come to me with all the skepticism, had familiarity with the Bible, you know, all the stuff that he, most of it, of course, supernatural, that can't happen. And, you know, and I finally said to him, I said, you are like a guy who is reading Moby Dick, and you won't pay attention to the whale. Would you look at the whale? Just, all these are important questions, but look to the king. Look at Jesus. Would you look at Jesus? We're, you know, we're sorting out questions, I get that, about religion, about the nature of reality, about our own relationships and our life and a million other things that we try to navigate and manage. But I want to say this, if Jesus' kingship means anything, it must mean this, that you and I aren't kings. That we're fundamentally handicapped and unable to manage all of our lives and arrive at all the satisfying answers. You know, and there just comes the time to say, to cover the mouth and bend the knee and say, the king has come. And that, and that my fundamental calling in life is not to competence, it's to reliance on the king. I think that's a pretty good definition of a church, a bunch of people who rely on the king, the community of the king. It's not that we don't have our struggles. Um, you know, I, I think that the church that doesn't come with skeptic, that doesn't have some skepticism and unresolved questions and doubts and fears and hopes and all of that, that's the definition of an unhealthy church because no one's being honest. But the gospel brings about authenticity and, and you know, and it, it, it calls us to quit playing games. And so you might experience some of that stuff here more than any other place. But our, our fundamental posture is not one of having to figure it all out. Our fundamental posture is coming to the feet of the king. And when you, when you come to know the king, you actually come to find out that the greatest need, greater even than sorting out all the questions and managing all of our lives, the greatest, the greatest thing is the sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. And in that we find our greatest joy, our greatest liberation, our greatest life. So the question for, for all of us is, will you look to the king? Will you acknowledge him as king? Can we bend the knee? Some of us need to do that for the first time. Some of us need to do that in a fresh way. But whether it's a first consideration or a fresh apprehension, you know, unlike the people in the synagogue who were just beginning to see and contend with Jesus' story as it unfolded before them, we've got the grace of seeing it in its fullness. 
that the king has come, and he comes as one who owns the place, and he lays claim to that which is rightly his, and he crushes sin under his foot and death and hell for us, that we would be set free. You know, the skirmish here is just the earliest incursion, but it concludes at the cross. And it's on that cross where instead of excavating a single person from the shrieking, afflicting, thrashing evil and oppression of sin, Jesus willingly goes and gets buried by it all himself. Not for himself, but that we would be liberated. He takes it all upon himself that we would believe. On the cross, he takes the fullness of the horror of sin on himself and a shameful death so that the full and final victory would be won for us. His oppression for our liberation, his punishment for our blessing, his misery for our joys, his death for our life. So that by faith, we'd say the name, we'd confess his name of our king and find that when we submit to him, we prevail. We prevail. Let's uh, pray as we get ready to come to his table. Uh, Lord, uh, even in, in the time you, you've given me to kind of contemplate these things this week, I have uh, been freshly convicted of how readily and easily I diminish your kingship, how I diminish your grace, how these things, in ways that are frankly embarrassing to admit, become kind of ho-hum stuff in my life. The forgiveness of sins, the imputation of righteousness, the assurance of life, Lord, the gifts that you have poured out into our hearts and calling us into fellowship. Lord, the, the, the joys that you give us in your scripture. Lord, um, all the joys of life with Jesus thrown in that we would know it in its abundance, that we would know the ousia, the being, the ground, the, the foundation of it all. Lord, I, I, I diminish that to my harm. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, would you kind of make our mouths water? Would you um, make us be on the receiving end of the blessing that comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You have given us a kingdom and a king, and your kingdom, unlike every other kingdom and every other king, does not call us to a submission that would crush us, but it actually calls us to be subdued unto grace, unto freedom, unto liberation, so that wildly, and I still haven't sorted all of this out, but everything that is yours becomes ours, that, that we aren't merely subjects of the king, but we are sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs with Christ. And, and Lord, I imagine that we will spend eternity enjoying and reveling in that singular truth, but we get to start on it now, here at your table. And so, Lord, uh, for those who have put their faith in you, would we come and be hungry and thirsty and be fed at the king's table where we don't come with resolutions to meet your demands, but we come as worshipers um, who know that all the demands have been met in Christ Jesus and all the benefits have accrued to us. And at this table, we get a foretaste of the greater feast to come when we will be seated at the king's table feasting on the richest affair, every T 
tear dried, all sin, all sin conquered and done away with, no longer afflicting us with renewed bodies, with Jesus at the head, in full enjoyment with the beauty of our King. So Lord, you've given us a foretaste of that now. Feed us here. Uh, nourish us unto life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.